Buongiorno, benvenuto. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Florence episode 7, which I'm going to de- devote to the Palazzo Medici Riccardi. The first fancy house or palazzo that the Medici family built for themselves in the centre of Florence once they started to really do well. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the building and some of the artwork that's in it. And I'm going to devote the second half of the episode to a series of potted biographies of five generations of the Medici family, all the ones who were most closely associated with this particular building. Because their name pops up in so many places all over the city, I think it will be useful to just have in one place a rundown of several generations. And we'll save the later half of the family for a future episode on a building that they were more associated with. From the 1440s onwards, this building was very much associated with the Medici. They'd moved in. At times, there'd be up to 50 family members living there. Um, But it wasn't just their home. It was also the headquarters, in Cosimo's day at least, of the Medici Bank. So it was home and office all rolled into one. And if you're wondering about the double name, the Palazzo Medici Riccardi, that's because eventually the Medici did move out and on elsewhere. And the building was bought later again, actually, in 1670, by a a different family, the Riccardis. So both names have been retained in the current name for the palace. So, in 1444, Cosimo de' Medici, who by this stage was the head of a very prosperous bank and had some money that he could spend, um, was looking for somewhere impressive to have as a new home for himself and his family and he hit on a road in Florence known as the Via Larga and decided he would have a palace built there and commissioned the arch- an architect Micolozzo to carry out his plans. Actually his plans are quite interesting because although he was thinking of it I think at least in part as a symbol of, of his success he didn't want to build anywhere that looked too ostentatious. I think he was far too canny for that. He knew that if the building looked as if it oozed money, people would start wondering where the banker had got all his money from and and be jealous of him. In fact, he himself put this very well when he apparently was shown the designs by Brunelleschi and thought they were a bit too fancy. So he asked for something plainer and said wisely, quote, envy is a plant one should never water. So as you can see, when you visit the building today, it has two long stone fronts, uh, one down the Via Larga and one down an adjoining road, and doesn't look particularly ostentatious. But that changes as soon as you get inside. Cosimo was very happy to have the inside much more fancy, because most people wouldn't be seeing that and wouldn't therefore feel jealous. But once you get inside, there's a lovely inner courtyard with archways and each one's decorated with the gold shield, the symbol of the family, the golden shield with the six red balls on it. So everybody would know straight away whose house they were in. And although the outside's pretty plain, inside there were other fantastic works of art commissioned specially by Cosimo to put here. Two of the most famous, in fact, are not here anymore, um, but they were originally designed to decorate this courtyard. One of those is Donatello's statue, Judith and Holofernes, which is now in the Palazzo Vecchio. And the second one is also a Donatello statue, his piece of David, the one that's now to be found in the Bargello. That too originally was meant to be here in the courtyard of the Palazzo Medici Riccardi. 
both of these statues were quite ahead of their time and uh, drew a lot of attention. The one of Judith and Holofernes, because of its bloodthirsty theme, Judith is captured in the very moment when she's about to cut off the head of Holofernes because she's saving her city. He's about to overtake it, but she's been invited into his tent, got him drunk, and now she's going to murder him. So it attracted a lot of attention because it was of such a bloodthirsty deed and also because Donatello had caught a person, as it were, in the very act of of doing something, of committing a murder. So it was a very lively statue that took you right into the story. The statue of David, which Donatello designed, was also much talked about but for different reasons. So if you've seen that, you'll know it's a very dapper little figure, naked. David has his hand on his hip And although at the time the thing for statues was often that they would be on a military theme, this one is very, very unmilitary. It's very much not your masculine hero. And that was a new thing. It's thought that it was really an expression of Donatello's homosexuality. So that would have been daring. And it broke the mould in a different way as well, in that although it was on a religious theme, the story of David and Goliath... It wasn't done in the usual way, making the hero look very manly and heroic. You go up to the first floor, you'll see a Madonna and Child statue by Filippo Lippi. And most famously of all, uh, in the entire building, if you go into the family chapel, then you'll see a piece of artwork that we'll come back to in a few moments. But just to summarise quickly, it's a fresco on the walls of the chapel done by Benezzo Gozzoli purporting to show the procession of the three kings making their way to Bethlehem. Although, in fact, it's very much a Tuscan landscape. Some of the people in the picture were known at the time to be very much modelled on members of the Medici family. And the city to which they're wending their way is very much Florence, not Bethlehem. So it's a picture which very much repeats the theme of the entire building, really, by pointing out that the Medici are a very important family. It makes them the centre of everything. It makes it quite clear that they have the power. So perhaps a good moment to talk a little bit about the Medici family in slightly more detail than we've had to date. So they came to Florence from the countryside. So they were originally, they were country peasants. They arrived in the 13th century, it's thought. But they grew into one of the richest, most powerful families in the whole of Florence. They built up Europe's biggest, richest bank, They played a leading role in ruling the city, but they weren't without controversy as well. They were exiled more than once, and the dynasty, however powerful it was at its height, about 200 years after they first became very well known in the city, petered out, and eventually the Medici, in Florence at least, were no more. I'm going to start with Giovanni di Bici di Medici, who was the father of Cosimo. Cosimo is probably the first well-known member, but in fact it was his father who first was so successful in business and built the bank up to a point where they had a lot of money and that led to their power. By the time he handed over the bank, he'd opened up branches well outside Florence. There were French and German and English branches of the Medici Bank and they were absolutely crucial both in Italian politics and in European politics because they were one of the few banks that you, to whom you could go if you really needed a large amount of money, perhaps to finance a war or similar. 
and it was also with Giovanni that the idea of the Medici getting involved in politics first started. He, for example, was the prior of the Bankers and Money Changers Guild, so taking a leading role not just in making money for himself, but in organising the banking system generally. He did other things which could be seen in later generations. For example, he made generous donations to charity, in this in his case to plague victims. And he also founded a charity of his own called the Spedale degli Innocenti, or the Foundlings Hospital. It's possible to think that he was simply trying to better the family name, to get more prestige, to become well-known, to be admired by everybody. And actually, he had the money to do these things. But nevertheless, it does remain true that he was charitable. You can't deny that a foundlings hospital, an institution aimed to do something about the fate of orphan children, was a good thing. But in fact, it did have its senior side. So it's thought that really right up until the 15th century, at least, there were slaves in Florence. And it was thought that when these slaves had children, they were encouraged or possibly forced to give them up and bring them to the spedali and leave them. And the system which was in operation right up until the 1870s was that there was a a door, little revolving door in the brickwork of the building called a rota, where you could come along and leave your baby and know that the hospital staff would pick it up and take it in and care for it. Giovanni's son Cosimo inherited the bank at the height of its success and he built it up even further. He was in many ways a popular banker. He too was a great patron of the arts. He used to take in artists like Donatello and Giotto and put them up in his house and pay all their expenses and encourage them to have the freedom to work. So there were many reasons why he would be popular. But he certainly wasn't popular with everybody. There were a lot of other aristocrats, for example, who were very much his rivals. Some of the quarrels he got into led him into terrible difficulties. So, for example, he had one ongoing dispute with the Albizzi family, which led eventually to him being imprisoned and banished. He was forced to go off and live in Venice while the Albizzi family took over the, the ruling of Florence. Although a few years later, in fact, Things weren't going quite so well back in the city and Cosimo was invited to come back. So he had the satisfaction of a triumphant homecoming, which actually Machiavelli witnessed and which he wrote about, writing the following, quote, Rarely has it occurred that a citizen returning triumphant from a victory was received by the fatherland with such a gathering of people and with such an outpouring of benevolence. So Cosimo definitely had the last word there. The Albizzi family, of course, were then banished themselves and Cosimo carried on in charge of the Republic of the City of Florence. And his rule was remembered as much as anything for some of the cultural activities that took place while he was there. So, for example, he founded what was really Europe's first public library. He had a massive book collection of his own, which at first he kept in the palace, the Palazzo, on the Via Larga but which in the end had to be moved to a newly built, purpose-built library in the, next to the Church of San Lorenzo. And it's known that because he was very interested in, in the classics and, and in ancient history, he had an, a collection of books, all kinds of things, such as Cicero and Tacitus and Virgil, but also Italian works. So he had the works of Dante and Petrarch and Boccaccio as well in his library. And he collected around him artists and people who were interested in culture, people like Donatello and Brunelleschi. 
Another way in which he was deemed to have done what the people of Florence needed from him was that he and his wife, Contessina di Bardi, had two sons, Piero and Giovanni, so that left everybody hopeful that the Medici dynasty, under whose rule they quite liked living, was going to continue. The the succession was secure. And so for these various reasons, when he died, his funeral was a major event in Florence. He himself had said that he didn't want a state funeral and that he wanted to be buried in the Church of San Lorenzo and not, for example, in the cathedral. So this was duly done. There was a very long procession all the way to the church on the day of his funeral. Unfortunately, Cosimo's son Piero didn't make such a good and popular job of running Florence. Suffice to tell you, for example, that he was always known as Pierre the Gouty. He seems to have had a happy family life. He and his wife had five children, so again, that did secure the succession. But he wasn't popular, as shown, for example, by the fact that there was an assassination attempt on him. His father, Cosimo, did seem to have had concerns about how Piero would carry on his legacy, and he left a friend, one Diotti Salvi Neroni, to be Piero's advisor, really to keep an eye on him and see how things were going. But that didn't work out well, because the advisor eventually turned against Piero and joined a plot to have him murdered. And a day was chosen, a day in August in 1466, and the chosen murderers were sent to ambush Piero on one of his trips back from the suburban villa of Careggi, where in fact he had a country house. But in fact the plot was foiled, news had got out, and in fact these murderers were met, not by Piero, but by his son Lorenzo, accompanied by an armed battalion, and they beat the attackers off. And um, it's quite significant really that Lorenzo played this role, because Piero the Gouty is sort of a bridge really between his father Cosimo, who had such a good reputation, and his son Lorenzo, who went on to be known as Lorenzo il Magnifico. Piero himself, not so much. So let's move on to Lorenzo. He, of course, was Cosimo's grandson, and he had inherited uh, much of the love of literature, love of the arts, and the political wisdom from his grandfather. He was much more like his grandfather than his father, except in one respect. Lorenzo, it was said, was not such a good businessman. He was known, in fact, as the first Medici to spend rather than to accumulate. He seemed to be more interested, for example, in his patronage of the arts than he ever really was in the day-to-day running of the bank. There was a flamboyance about Lorenzo, which people generally quite liked, his wedding's a good example. So in the run-up to the wedding, it was decided to hold some jousting sessions in the Piazza of Santa Croce. Lorenzo himself took part and was really quite dashing in his silken garments. We're told that he wore a mantle of white silk bordered with scarlet and a velvet surcoat and a silk scarf richly embroidered with roses. And at his wedding itself, there were three complete days of feasting dancing, games, banquets in the streets of Florence to which all these city dwellers were invited so people didn't forget that either in a hurry. But it's interesting to note that when the Medici family were looking for a wife for Lorenzo they didn't pick anyone from Florence. They had the fear that if they picked somebody from one of the other well-known important families all the rest would be cross. So they decided to be a bit clever about it and they went all the way to Rome and chose a young lady from there, Clarice Orsini, who 
also brought the advantage that she would make a closer link between the Medici and the Pope because she came from Rome. It does seem time and time again that when the Medici are doing anything, they've got at least half an eye on politics and how it's going to look and how they can further themselves in at any particular instance. But that's not to say that there weren't also problems for Lorenzo. We, you've already heard about the plot, the Patsy conspiracy, in which the Patsy family tried to murder him and succeeded in murdering his brother Giuliano. After that point, Lorenzo insisted on carrying on the feud, which was partly with the Pope, which had led to the Pazzi conspiracy in the first place. So there was a papal war against Florence. The Pope excommunicated Lorenzo. The Roman branch of the Medici Bank was sequestered. And the Signoria were asked to turn Lorenzo over to the Pope. They refused, of course, but battles ensued, and in the end Lorenzo had to seek a diplomatic end to the conflict. Climb down, really. But it's not really for that that he's most remembered. It's more for his patronage of the arts, the fact that he associated himself with lots of the artists and writers of the day. He sponsored Michelangelo, for example. And all of this is remembered long after his quarrels with the Pope have been forgotten. Lorenzo was succeeded by his son, known as Piero the Unfortunate, much less of a character than his father, much less imposing. I think the unfortunate title relates to the fact that on his watch, Florence was invaded by the French. He himself fled and in fact eventually drowned uh, trying to escape and Florence had to surrender. And that debacle led to the arrival of Machiavelli in a position of power and to the rise of the mad monk Savonarola. More about all of that in a later episode. In fact, although Lorenzo's son Piero let him down rather with his unfortunate tag, um, another son and a nephew did much better. So Lorenzo's son Giulio eventually became Pope Leo X. And in fact, a nephew of his, Giovanni, also became a, pl- a Pope. And he ruled as Pope Clement VII. So the Medici influence was still strong. In fact, from this point onwards, there were no more direct descendants of Cosimo or Lorenzo in power. Power passed to a second branch of the Medici family. So we're going to talk a little bit about the first member of that branch, because he too lived in the Palazzo Medici Riccardo, and he was Grand Duke Cosimo I. But with him came really a number of major changes. So he's credited with having ruled, turned Florence from being a republic to becoming a monarchy. He decided he wanted to have much more power than his predecessors had had. Um, He showed this, for example, by moving the family out of the palace in the Via Larga and into the Palazzo Vecchio, from where Florence was governed. But in fact, he wasn't there all that long either, because after that, he had built the Palazzo Pitti across the river. Come to all of this in future episodes. After Duke Cosimo I, there were another half-dozen Grand Dukes descended from him. Until the 1730s, when the very last one, Gian Gastoni, died with no children, and that was the end of the rule of the Medici family. I'll come back to all of that in a later episode. For the moment, now that you know who lived in the Palazzo Medici Riccardi, let's come back inside it and talk a little bit about the chapel upstairs, which is really the main reason why visitors come and the thing over which they linger the most. So it's upstairs on the first floor and it was the family chapel and it's the little room that was decorated 
by Benazzo Gozzoli in about 1460 with his wonderful fresco. In 1950, a well-known art historian, E.H. Gombrich, wrote the following about this fresco, quote, No one who goes to Florence should miss the joy of a visit to this small chapel in which something of the zest and savour of a festive life seems still to linger. The family chapel, of course, was designed as one of the most private rooms in the whole building, but for, by that same token, it was also the place to which you might want to take your really most honoured guests or the people you most wanted to impress. So to have an amazing fresco in there for them to see uh, was going to pay off in the end. It purports to show the journey of the Magi to Bethlehem, but as uh, the same E.H. Gombrich wrote in the 1950s, it really is a, quote, fairy tale world of charm and gaiety. It covers three walls of the chapel and it's noted really for its sumptuous colours. You really just feel surrounded by the very colourful scene, which is in fact much more ornate than any of other of Gozzoli's other works. It seems really to reflect the Medici taste. I think when he was painting for them, he had to pull out all the stops. It's a strange idea in many ways because it combines a Florentine tradition with the biblical story and the Medici, of course, are all intertwined in it. So it's a way of them getting themselves to look very important. So the, the event that it's based on is a procession that took place in Florence every year just after Christmas, at Epiphany, in fact, in which a religious group who were known as the Compagnia di Magi marked Epiphany by having a procession through the city centre really in memory of the journey which the kings had made across the desert to find the baby Jesus. The painting very much shows both. It's supposed to be the three kings but actually um, when you looked at it carefully as particularly in the days when it was actually painted when you knew everybody you could see that many of the main characters were based on members of the Medici family. So Lorenzo is there, other members of the family are there, they can be quite clearly recognised by their features and if you look at the horse's bridles each one is decorated by the Medici family coat of arms. It is thought that Piero de' Medici commissioned the piece of work and when you see the images of the Medici family dressed as kings winding their way through the hillside with a whole procession of attendants following them. And you notice that Piero himself is the leading rider on a white horse right at the front, and his son Lorenzo, dressed all in gold, is in the foreground. You know that he's sending a message about who's important now in Florence, and the fact that the family is going to continue, the next generation is already there, the Medici will be ruling. One poignant thing about it, actually, is that uh, Lorenzo's brother, Giuliano, is also there. So, of course, a few years later, when he was murdered in the cathedral, that must have taken on a very sad aspect. The artist certainly did as he was asked, but he did manage to sneak himself into the picture as well. You can see him on the left-hand side, wearing a red beret, and on it, it has the words in gold, Opus Benotti, in other words, the work of Benotti. But that's a small detail. The major thought that you're left with when you see it is of the importance of the Medici family and of their leading everybody into the future. Self-aggrandisement on a major scale. But that really is a good summary of what the function of the Palazzo Medici Riccardi actually was when it was designed. Okay, so that wraps up this episode. Next time we're going to San Lorenzo, which was the church that was the home church, if you like, of the Medici family. 
going to look at that and talk about some of the characters most associated with it. So a little bit more on Cosimo and quite a lot on the artist Donatello. Cosimo and Donatello are buried together in the crypt of the church, so it's a good episode in which to talk about them and their friendship. So I hope you'll be interested to hear that. And for the moment, just remains to thank you very much for listening today. And to sign off, as usual, grazie, arrivederci. (laughs) 